You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening. Welcome to the House of Literature and to this conversation with Alan Hollinghurst, Edouard Louis and Knut Olav Ormos. My name is Madeleine Jedemetz and I work with the literary program here. Alan Hollinghurst and Edouard Louis have long read each other's books with great interest. While Louis has written brutally honest depictions of growing up gay in a homophobic family and environment, Hollinghurst's fiction explores gay culture and experience through the decades including the AIDS crisis and gay life prior to the decriminalization in the UK. Here in Norway, we have been celebrating 50 years since homosexuality was decriminalized this year, but LGBT rights are being curbed around the world and our own Oslo Pride ended in a fatal shooting. In such a climate, is the gay writer forced into an activist role? And what does it entail to write from gay male experience? And what is the power of shared experience in fiction? In this conversation, Hollinghurst and Louis will talk about their relationship to each other's books, about influence, and about the role of gay literature. We're also very happy to have Knut Olav Omos, director of the Free Word Foundation, with us leading the conversation here today. Please give a warm welcome to Alan Hollinghurst, Edouard Louis, and Knut Olav Omos. Thank you all for being here. These have been really exciting days discussing Edvard Louis' books and not least the many really urgent social and human issues uh, his books raise. Edvard Louis and Alan Hollinghurst are two authors uh, who mean a lot to me personally also and I know to many here. Uh, for me, one of them for more than 30 years. <laughs> Alan and uh, the other over the last last years. Uh, two of Alan's most remarkable books are his first one, The Swimming Pool Library from 1988. And then, uh, for example, the, uh, the Line of Beauty from 2004, which won a Booker Prize and also was converted into a, a, a very good TV series. And these two books, Swimming Pool Library and Line of Beauty, have been a uh, formative influence on so many for more than a generation. When it comes to Edward's uh, amazingly beautiful and remarkably powerful novels, we have heard about most of them already these two days from different angles, so I want to introduce them. But I want to say uh, in this Oslo context that the translations into Norwegian of Edward Louis' books are really, really first class. So thank you, publisher Oskar Haug and translator Egil Halmøy. You have also created great literature because an excellent translator uh, succeeds in exactly that. <clears throat> but it's uh, uh, not very often uh, appreciated. By the way, the strange title of this conversation, Friends of Dorothy, what does that really mean, Alan? <laughs> I don't know who came up with Friends of Dorothy was a, a quaint loc locution, still in circulation when I was sort of a teenager, <laughs> uh, a me meaning gay. Yes. You see, 
is he a friend of Dorothy? I think he might have met Dorothy, but I don't know whether they're really friends. Um, <laughs> and there, yes, there were various euphemisms of that kind. Um, musical was another. Yeah. Um, I remember going round a, a big country house where the, uh, the previous um, Marquis, who owned the house, had been a big military man, and his son was quite the opposite and was <laughs> the screaming queen. <laughs> and, and someone saying to one of the attendants, um, is the present Marquis a military man? And she said, no, no, he's a, he's a musical man. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and I dare say French has its own uh, euphemisms for these, uh-huh. these things. Do you have a similar expression in French, like France or Dorothy? I mean, we had some, like, uh, la jaquette and everything. Uh, la jaquette. Yeah. Uh, I know more... Uh, the insults, but maybe it's my natural tendency to <laughs> see what is going wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought, uh, but this friend of Dorothy things became uh, popular again uh, this last mm-hmm. couple of years, I think, and uh, I love to use it. So mm-hmm. I f- mm-hmm. thought it was a very elegant and beautiful title. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you have been a mutual inspiration and inspiration for each other when it comes to your authorships. Even though you are very different, uh, coming from different cultures, different backgrounds, and different educational backgrounds too. So, so c- could you try to summarize now, after these two days hearing each other and talking about each other, how, how exactly have you inspired each other as authors? What do you find in each other's books? Uh, Edward first, perhaps. Um, I mean, uh, the book of um, Alan... Um, means so much to me. Uh, I cannot believe I'm uh, next to him today. <laughs> it sounds like a, the cheesy ending of a Hollywoodian movie uh, <laughs> where a working class kid uh, ends up next to someone who he has been admiring so much. And I remember reading um, all of Alan's books, um, uh, The Stranger Child, uh, The Swimming Pool Library, of course, and in particular, uh, The Line of Beauty, which is probably one of the books I've been reading the most in my life, again and again, buying it to everyone else around me, refusing to be friends with people who didn't read it. (laughs) Um, And uh, how how much it um, affected me in the way that, um, you know, what you see very beautifully and very clearly in Alan Hollinger's books is um, that homosexuality uh, is an adventure and that the history of an homosexual person really looks like a story, you know, of those adventurers in the 17th century or in the 18th century who were traveling the world and discovering new areas, new countries, new cultures, new civilizations they didn't know before. Um, And this is what happens very often in gay experience. You grow up as a person full of shame and full of secrets and full of desires that you cannot express, you know, it creates a very specific kind of childhood. What it is to be six years old and seven years old and at every second, every minute, every moment you are trying to hide who you are. Like there is nothing you can compare to that kind of childhood. When I was a child, other kids were playing and I was trying to hide my, hide my secret. They were laughing, I was trying to hide my secret, not mm-hmm. to laugh in a feminine way, not to... They were talking about girls, I was trying to hide my secrets. So every moment was about lying, 
hiding, burying the person I was. And suddenly, when at 16 years old or seven years old, you finally experience your desire, this desire you have been trying to, to, to kill inside you for so many years, there is something of an explosion. And I remember arriving in Paris and meeting men and having, having sex with men, having hookups with men, having relationships with men who were some of them, you know, some of them were bankers, some of them were drug dealers, some of them uh, just went out of, outside of jail, some of them were soccer player, some of them were artists, some of them were rich, some of them were poor. And throughout this history of homosexuality, which is not my personal experience, but is really a, a structure, it is something you really encounter in Alan Ollinger's books. And you see those gay characters who are really uh, living their life as this kind of explosion and adventures that is a kind of revenge against the shame, uh, the silence, and the self-hate you were accumulating uh, during your whole childhood. And before experiencing these adventures, I read it uh, in the books of Alan Ollinghurst. And mm. the line of beauty is, uh, frankly, one of the most important books uh, ever written uh, <laughs> alongside uh, Sophocle and Faulkner. Uh, um, no, I, I believe it. I, I, really, I really mean it. Uh, it's a book that changes everything, everything. So uh, thank you, Alan, for well, thank being you. Well, Alan, what would you say? You just uh, <laughs> you just gave a good lecture uh, uh, about Edward's uh, books, but but how how has he in any in any way influenced you? Well, I've, it's so hard to say how anyone has actually influenced one. I mean, I was absolutely ar arrested by um, the end of Eddie when I, when it first came out, and I've sort of fallen on all the books subsequently. I think it, it's it's partly, of course, the, the thing of. I, my whole education and sort of personality as a writer has been one absolutely soaked in literature. And um, you know, my, my first book, Swimful Library, is you know pays homage to various gay writers, British gay writers and artists of the century. And I approached the the subject of writing about gay life, you know, not entirely, but in large part through literature. And it was fascinating to me, if, as it always to, is, to read about things which have very parallel experiences in them, but are actually starting from a different place. Um, and, you know, the absolutely sort of transfixing clarity of Edouard's writing, I think, is the thing that, that struck me very much. And as I was trying to say in my little talk earlier, the idea which fascinates me, you know, we were talking about the problems of autofiction yesterday, as a genre, but the, the thing that fascinates me about the the project of autofiction, if it's embraced sort of quite early in a writer's life. And I think of other gay writers like Edmund White or Andrew Holleran in America, that they start on this adventure with no idea how it's going to continue or conclude. Mm -hmm. And so as a reader, in volume after volume, one is sort of carried along on, on this, which is why I liken it to a, you know, a roman fleuve or something. I mean, it's, 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 some, it's a continuing story uh, in which the reader is sort of helplessly but very happily engaged. And I can't wait for the next one. <laughs> but, um, well, one of you just turned 30 years and 
You are you are 68. You mm -hmm. disclosed it yourself uh, in the no, basement. I can't deny. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and in spite of this difference, uh, you find that you have many things in common as authors. Uh, but uh, what would you say you you see differently? Uh, for example, Alan, do you share Edward's strong view of literature as a weapon, which he spoke about yesterday? That literature is not important in itself necessarily, but for what it is doing in the world, its impact. I don't think I did feel that in any very programmatic way. Um, when I wrote my first book, I had a strong sense that I was um, at last doing something which I needed to do um, to, to sort of talk about my own experience, but also to fill, it sounds so pompous to say this, but to fill a big gap. Um, they, it was very an interesting period of sort of British social history just preceded that. The, the key date for us was a, a, a little earlier than the one in, in Norway, um, 1967, and the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in England and Wales. Uh, so on a, a night in July, suddenly these... These acts were no longer illegal, um, but of course the change in in attitudes, public attitudes, and understanding of something was, was very much slower. Um, and when I was a graduate student at Oxford, I decided I wanted to write a thesis about gay writers like Ian e. Forster, so, who had not been able to write openly about uh, their own sexuality, even though it was you know sort of dominant part of their lives and indeed a, a sort of formative part of their creative personalities, but it couldn't be ex openly expressed. Um, and by the time I started writing my first novel, which was 1984, so 17 years after the... There, was, there were no sort of literary fiction which actually dealt with gay life in, in Britain at all. So to me, you were talking about the adventure of it, you know, it, it seemed to me an mm. extraordinary um, opportunity. I just, here is this whole fascinating mm. field of... You know, not only present life, but the history of my, my kind in Britain, which no, no one has, has written a novel about. So I've counted myself extremely lucky, and there was a, there was a feeling of, of sort of élan in actually writing that, that first book, which I, I don't think I've ever quite recaptured. <laughs> um, so, um, and I didn't, you know, it, 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 the book turns on, on a sort of anti-gay um, pogrom in, in 1954, the year I was born, mm -hmm. um, something not, not many people later knew about. Um, but I hadn't thought of it you know, as a political book or, or the publication of it as a political act. But I think, in spite of that, it's, it, it turned out that it was. You know. mm -hmm. um, and it was very... Another twist of history, of course, was the coming of AIDS in the 80s, because um, I started writing the book in 1984 when AIDS was just a vague rumour on the sort of American horizon, really. By the time it came out in 1988... The world that I was writing about had changed utterly. Mm. Um, and gay issues were very much at the forefront. And there was a, a sort of heinous piece of legislation introduced in the, by the Thatcher government, of, a, a local government bill, which a, a clause forbade any local authority to mm. spend money on anything which could be said to promote homosexuality, mm. rather as if you had a, a good advertising campaign by Saatchi and Saatchi or something. It would really catch on. You know. um, and, um, and so there was a lot of debate about... And, and these issues became public and politicised, again, in a way that I hadn't quite anticipated. Mm. Um, but there was a sense of, uh, of novelty, urgency and political purpose uh, when you entered the literary scene after the gay liberation and after AIDS. Uh, um, 
And uh, yeah, I remember reading dozens of books myself just after coming out in 91 about these same topics, uh, British and American books. But uh, do you think and write in other ways uh, these last years about gay life than, than earlier? Because um, uh, we, uh, we live in a time where in many places it's much easier to be, to be queer. Uh, and uh, what can this do to the literature? Well, um, it's true that I've often tended, you know, with my rather sort of historical turn of mind, I tended to, to look back, but I'm, I'm very much conscious of how any, any new, new, newly run one rights you know, are, are extremely vulnerable and increasingly vulnerable. I'm, I'm aware of the possible complacency that we have in a Western democracy when in Eastern Europe and, and certainly Af African friends of mine who have... have had to flee their, their countries in fear of their, their life and had sought and miraculously actually were accepted as refugees in, in Britain in our increasingly uh, refugee intolerant atmosphere. Um, so el elsewhere things are getting worse and worse for gay people. And I, I, I'm very, very conscious of that. Um, I, I don't think I know, it's, I know how to address such things myself, but I think a writer of Ed Edouard's sort of ability for sort of polemic and sociological analysis and so on can do. Mm. No, but I don't think um, I don't think it became uh, so much easier in fact when I met people uh, in this kind of context after readings, after uh, uh, conversation in political context, they always describe me uh, the same structure that we were evocating uh, before, uh, um, the shame, the secret, the fear, and as if the, 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 the political context was at least not as much changing uh, um, the situation as we think it would, uh, as is, we think it, it, it would change. Um, what, I, what I find, um, what I find in, in, in Halland's books also, um, is a sense of um, is a sense of happiness uh, and a sense of beauty, uh, even in the worst uh, context and even in the worst situation that you often find in your books, like war, death, disease. Uh, um, but even in these moments, you always have in Alan's books, when particularly when it deals with masculine homosexuality, a sense of uh, of celebration and a sense of, of joy. And this is for me particularly associated with the story of what it is, again, to be hiding yourself for so long. You know, I know so many gay mm. boys mm. who spend their childhood in their bedroom uh, building a show for their parents, you know, imitating a movie star or pop stars like uh, Britney Spears or Celine Dion, <laughs> and in fact kind of uh, overcoming the shadows of their life with the dream of the glitters and the dreams of the light and the dreams of being under the light and the dream of a party. And that's why I think you see the LGBT pride as it, as it is. I mean, it's the only movement of joy, you know, where we go in the street celebrating as an act uh, to change the situation, to change the political situation, and and this is very and this is very this is like nothing provides this kind of thing, and 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 the beauty in it is that I think that in every moment of joy, in a pride, you see all the shame 
and all the sadness that was overcame in order to make that possible. Mm. I remember when I, I, I wrote the book about my mother um, a few years ago, it was my first beautiful story. I mean, my first beautiful ending. I had never written a beautiful ending before. <laughs> I had written about people being killed or raped or assaulted uh, or people who escaped, but in a very complex uh, uh, situation. But my mother was the story of a woman who was bullied by my father, humiliated by my father, uh, who was uh, precluded in the space of the house. And, and one day, eventually, she, 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 she escapes. And I remember when I was writing the book, I thought, I don't want to make people happy. I don't want people to say, oh, this is a beautiful story. Uh, and that makes, uh, that makes us feel good, you know? Uh, um, and, and then makes them forget about all the women who don't succeed to escape like my mother, who don't have the opportunity to, ch to escape like my mother, who don't have the privilege to escape like my mother. And I remember when I was writing the book, thinking, like, how can I create uh, anger uh, out, of, uh, out of beauty? You know, it was like an ethical challenge for me. What it is to write beauty, but a beauty that would create anger, because the, most, the more you see the story of my mother is beautiful, mm -hmm. and the more you are angry for all the women who were killed by a man, who didn't escape, who were trapped in a man's madness and everything. Mm -hmm. And this is what I, this is what I see in, in, in Alan's book. Like, every moment of beauty linked to the experience of, of gay men in particular, um, is kind of revealing the story of everything that you had to chase and to escape from in order to achieve this beauty. And that's why beauty can be, in this context, extremely political. And that's why I disagree with some people nowadays who say, you know, the pride is not uh, radical enough. Uh, it should be like a sad, angry movement like all the others that I belong to. You know, the Yellow Vest, we are sad, we are angry. The movement against uh, police violence, we are sad, we are angry, and we have to be. Otherwise, we will not scare the governments, okay? If we are just uh, singing, we are working class and we are happy, they won't care, you know? <laughs> but because the dominations are diverse, you know, and you cannot give the same answer to different kinds of domination. And I think that in the context of homosexuality, joy and beauty that you find in Alan's books are perhaps more revolutionary that, than uh, anger would be, even if anger is also necessary, even if we saw a lot of necessary anger during the AIDS uh, fight and everything. So, of course, it's not exclusive. But I think that, uh, yes, gay literature is a, and the gay fight in general is an opportunity to reflect on the political importance of joy. Joy. Mm. <laughs> And, and joy, joy is a form of defiance. So you're saying really. is what joy is a form of defiance. In fact. Yes, yes, exactly. exactly. Yes, uh, that was a very strong thing to me from the start to write defiantly. Um, so defiantly is not actually to, to, to bother with saying that one was defying anything, you know, but but to write as if no one had anything against homosexuality, <laughs> uh, and to write without any uh, feeling any need to explain it or apologise for it or anything. Um, and that was extremely sort of liberating for me as a, as a writer, I have to say. Mm -hmm. mm. yeah. 
So uh, I think you, Edward, uh, you say in uh, the conversation, which has become a book uh, with, with Ken Loach, uh, that uh, love is political. Uh, wasn't that the expression you use? That love is love politi- is political. Oh, uh, oh did I say that? Uh, <laughs> something like that. I think. So. No. Y- yes. Uh, probably. I would agree. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Uh, Yes, 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 of course. Like you see it in also in in Alan's books, like um, what um, what what is what what is being made impossible in terms of love, of love affair, of love relationships. Mm. We know that people who uh, the gay people who died from AIDS uh, didn't die uh, from a disease. They also died from governments refusing to deal with this disease. They, mm. they, they died because of homophobia. They died because of uh, pharmaceutical companies who didn't want to give away the treatments and everything. So all the people who died from AIDS and all those ghosts hunting the books of Alan's are people who would have been in love and this love would, was made impossible by the homophobia of the governments and everything. And I remember now, now it's coming back to my mind when I was uh, saying it to, to Ken um, in, in the book we, we did together. Um, it was about, uh, it was probably about uh, the, the kind of what, what, what we, call, we could call the, 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 dub, the double violence of politics. And the fact that when there is um, a, a violent policies uh, towards, for example, working class people made by governments, mm-hmm. this is first violent because it takes them access to food or access to the possibility to pay their rent and everything. But then there is another violence in the kind of anxiety that it's creating within people and the violence it's creating between people themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, how can you love someone properly when every day you are afraid of not eating, when every day you are afraid of not paying your rent, mm. and how much this political second effects of politics is here every day in our lives. I think that if the government was giving more money to my father or to my mother, they would have been less uh, rude to me in this context. It doesn't mean that, of course, there are people who have a lot of money and they can be violent, but once again, it's it's a a completely different mechanism of violence. But there is something in politics that makes love more or less uh, possible. If we were living in, in, in countries where governments were struggling more against masculine domination, maybe my father would have changed and he would have said, I love you to my mother. My father never said I love you to my mother because he thought it was a feminine thing to express his feelings. Mm. And one day my mother said, he never tells me I love you and he's a dickhead, I don't want to be with him. (laughs) She chased him and my father, and this is part of the book on my father, I mean, my father was destroyed by that. My father loves my mother. When I see see him, he tells me I miss her, I love her. Mm. But we are living in, in, in countries that don't care about this masculine domination or not enough or not properly. So, of course, all, all of our feelings are uh, related to a political frame and a political situation, not only, but partly, of course. Yeah. Uh, you, are, you are interested in your literature, your books having an impact, doing something in, in the world, uh, and you try to understand homophobia through, through your books, uh, but, but what are then the most important uh, uh, factors of 
combating homophobia? Are they mainly political, economical, uh, social, cultural in a broader sense? Are they not at all religious, for example? I mean, the, the, it is. You would agree that it is uh, probably caused by many things, and there is never, there is no one answer to what is uh, creating homophobia or what is causing uh, homophobia or where does it come from. So, of course, there is an economical aspect, a religious aspect, uh, uh, a government uh, aspect, and, and everything. I think more often that um, it's an arbitrary cultural discourse you know i remember one day someone asking to claude levi strauss the anthropologist in in an interview why people are racist and as an anthropologist why is his answer to racism and claude levi strauss was saying um something like uh you know sometimes a cultural discourse just appear in a civilization and then people reproduce it without even knowing it. And sometimes when I think of the homophobia I was facing with my family or with the people in, in my childhood, I have the impression that it was like a, a language for them. My father didn't need to be scared of homosexuality, like people say sometimes, you know, homophobic people are scared of something. I don't think it's as psychological. It's more of a discourse that come here and my father didn't have another word than faggot to talk about me. You know, it was encrusted and in Twin with language. There is, I finish with this little anecdote. There is this, there is a, there is a beautiful uh, uh, scene that I often quote in, in one of the books of, of Primo Levi on another much higher level of violence, of course, when Primo Levi says that, uh, you know, he learned German uh, in the concentration camps in Auschwitz. You know, he knew a little bit of it. Then he was uh, sent to Auschwitz. Then he survived Auschwitz, and in Auschwitz, he had to learn German to understand the Nazi in order to survive. And in his last book, Les Naufragés et les Rescapés, The Drowned and the Saved, Primo Levi says that he has an encounter with, with, with some German people. It's happening several years after he survived Auschwitz. And he's with a group of, uh, of uh, physicians like him. Um, he's talking to them, and at some point, at the end of the interaction, he wants to say goodbye. And like we do, sometimes he wants to show that he knows how to say it in German. You know, like some people when they know one sentence in French, they are so happy. So they say, <laughs> merci beaucoup, bonjour. <laughs> and so Primo Levi was human after all. And so he wanted to, to show he knew some German words. And so he said to those German people, he says, um, uh, goodbye. Uh, uh, and instead of saying goodbye, he says, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and because... The language, the German language that he was learning is the German language mm. that he learned from Auschwitz. And the, and the violence was already in the language. You didn't need to want or to have some psychological effect inside you to be violent. Violence was already here in the language. Mm. And sometimes I wonder, once again at a completely different level, I wonder if homophobia is not here just because it's already here in the language, and people don't need to think about it to be homophobic. It's already in their flesh when they are born. And if they do think about it, then there's a fear of seeming homo homophilic or whatever the, <laughs> the opposite is, yeah, which is to stand out against the, the general homophobic assumption in your culture, mm -hmm. um, which takes a certain kind of courage or individuality mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, and to run the risk of being identified as gay yourself. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hmm. But concerning violence, uh, Edward, you are writing a lot about how oppression leads to oppression. 
for example, in the working class and how violence leads to violence again. Uh, but uh, is this also valid um, in queer culture, gay culture? Uh, I am just curious, aren't there very few really uh, bad gays in gay literature? <laughs> Lots of beauty, but few bad gays. There is a book, or, a book, am I, am I, a book recently published called Bad Gays. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a problem they are for the, the generally sort of, uh, op optimistic tre trend of, uh, of, of. Are there any gay, bad gays uh, in your, uh, your books? Um, there are, I think, bad, bad gays, yes. I mean, there, there are people who are, who are sort of mean and taking advantage of others. Um, I mean, one thing I wanted to do with that first book, The Swimming Pool Library, was, was to have a narrator who is, I hope, sufficiently sort of charming and interesting to make the reader go along with them, uh, but who is tremendously unself-aware in various things about, about his attitudes to other people, about his, his sense of... In, Entitlement of access to, to people of other classes and races and so on, which he, he just takes as a sort of tribute to his own magnificence, but actually has no, no understanding of the lives of these other people at all. Um, so it's a sort of ironical way of, of, of um, treat, treating the subject rather than confronting it straight, which is a fascinating thing about first-person narration, I think. Um, and, uh, you know the unreliable narrator and all that. But it's, it's, a, it's a deep thing and something I'm sort of coming back to in the book I'm writing now after having written in between a, n a number of books in the third person. Um, and I think it's another thing which has been so fascinating to me in now reading and rereading all Edouard's books and, and seeing you know, the, the, sort of the nature of the testifying force of the, of the first person. Um, but what if I'm making up this person who is testifying? And... Uh, um, so, um, yeah, the, the, I think probably some, some of my main characters are fairly, fairly bad gays. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, never, I never wanted to idealise... You know, there was the adventure of homosexuality, the unapologetic um, d description of, of, of gay life, uh, but I was always very wary of, of the... the, the uh, the ideal, implausibly idealised figure. I'm much more interested in complicated people who are uh, often people living in their own sort of imaginative worlds, which make their own perhaps rather strange preoccupations. Um, so that they're, I don't want them to be types. I, I want them to be rather sort of quirky individuals. Mm -hmm. yeah. we, we are three gay men here on the stage talking about uh, gay issues and gay literature, uh, of course, today, the questions and problems are much broader, and we are to talking about LGBTQI plus issues, and, and uh, many minority groups within the minorities are, are really uh, fighting tough battles. Uh, aren't these now today the, the important uh, problems, battles to focus on? Um. Well, they are certainly battles to be focused on, yes. Uh, and it depends who's doing the focusing, I think. Um, I mean, I've never felt any sort of obligation to pursue an issue because it happens, happens to be in, in the news. Um, and um, indeed, I've always rather re resisted the idea, even within the context of, of gay writing, as being any sort of spokesman or taking any responsibility for the, the world of, of activity that I'm writing about. Um, and I think particularly 
at the time, in the 1980s and 90s, there was an expectation that a, a gay writer would address the AIDS crisis, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just knew, for sort of artistic reasons, as much as anything, just not seeing a way that I could I could do it in a, mm-hmm. in a way that was satisfactory to me, mm-hmm. that I didn't want to do that. And there were a lot of literature of varying value was sort of generated immediately out of the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. And as we were saying, I, I took my time until I could sort of come back and look at it. So I, I think I, at the moment, don't see myself writing about those issues. But I think, of course, that there is a sense that what the latest thing that people are engaged by is, is moves on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think trans issues, particularly now, are, are occupying a space in the public discourse that gay issues did perhaps mm-hmm. you know, 40 or 50 years ago. But you have said in an interview that you think that uh, you think that new writers today are not emerging as gay writers, they uh, may be emerging as queer writers. Yes, I, well, I think, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I just think our whole understanding now, the discourse around sexuality is so much more com- complex and, and subtle and it's not as polarized as it was. Oh. Um, and that uh, you know, we're not inter- so interested in, uh, in defining as exploring sexuality, which se- seems to me infinitely more I would not agree with this. No, I mean, I, I, I think it would, be, it would be dangerous to think uh, as the queer culture, as the queer identity, uh, as the new norm, Uh, what is more beautiful is to uh, create a space in which people can be queer or gay or anything else. Um, but uh, I, I feel I feel gay. There are some things I don't want to explore. <laughs> I will not explore them. Mm. And 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 for me, uh, in my childhood, the possibility of being gay was so suppressed mm. that I remember arriving in Paris and wanting wanting to be gay. <laughs> when some kids who came from more privileged milieu, in which it was culturally more uh, easy and everything, and where uh, being gay was more possible, they wanted to blur their identity. Mm. Because of course you always want to reject what you already have, but it's a privilege you have only when you get some some privileges. And uh, I, I wonder sometimes to which extent the a new kind of uh, exigency to be queer and not to be gay walks mm. along with a certain class culture of blurring something because it was already easy for you. So I'm not saying people should not be queer. Mm. I'm saying like how this kind of idea that it should be replaced by one another is dictated unconsciously by, uh, by, by, by a class, mm-hmm. uh, by a class uh, background. Yes. And, and, and today I feel that Uh, that, and it, it's linked to your first question. I feel really um, a new kind uh, uh, of gay phobia in the left, like I never experienced before. You know, mm-hmm. there are uh, symposium every day to talk about uh, gay racism, uh, gay imperialism, uh, gay blah blah blah, gay hegemony, gay in a space where if you were doing something about Uh, the racism of the working class or the misogyny of the working class, people would kill you and they would tell you, no, you are like uh, reproducing a bad idea of those oppressed community. You mm-hmm. cannot do that. You know, if someone was doing uh, uh, on the left, mm-hmm. I, so I don't care about the others, I, uh, on, the, on the left side of politics, if someone was doing something about, uh, as a general topic, the homophobia of refugees, mm-hmm. everybody would bully them. Mm-hmm. But with the gay people, It is possible to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and when you go to the Pride, 
you have the impression that, that the gay body has to serve all the other bodies. So we ask gay people, what are you doing for women? What are you doing for refugees? What are you doing? Which is what we want to do, what most people do. Like Michel Foucault was fighting for prisoners when no one cared. Jean Genet was fighting with Palestinians, along with them, living with them, with other writers, with other people, but it was also linked with homosexuality. Uh, Alan wrote about racism uh, in an extremely important way. Uh, James Baldwin was writing about women in a very important way. And there is something today that I find not only so unfair, but very dangerous, which is always a suspicion that gay people are not enough and that it should always give a proof and an evidence that they deserve to be here on this, her, on this planet, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I wonder where it comes from. And where this, uh, this, because once again, with any other oppressed categories, no one would let tell you that. But if you do something about gay racism, which doesn't mean that there is no mechanism of racism in the gay community, of course, mm. uh, that we can address, but addressing this mm. as a racism or the hegemonia or the colonialism of gay people is just, for me, uh, the expression of a kind of return um, to uh, hate against gay people, uh, and I think that that's also one of the reasons why the book of Halland are so important, because they are counter-offensive against this, they are counter-fire against this. Mm -hmm. And we should, yes, really, really pay attention to it, because, um, you know, where, where, do, where does it come from? There was... That, there, is, there was this also very beautiful idea from, from Michel Foucault who was saying, you know, if you want to understand a society, you should not pay attention to the oppositions between the right and the left, how much they fight, how much they disagree. But Michel Foucault would say you have to look at the episteme, mm -hmm. which is all the things that people agree on even when they disagreed, you know? Like, for example, in Western Europe, we saw so many people, both from the left and the right, becoming racist, anti-refugees and everything. So they pretend to fight, but they, sh they share the same racism, you know? So how much this new homophobia has become an episteme of the political current uh, field, I think this is really a discussion that should happen because it scares me sometimes. Mm -hmm. Do you think yeah. this is a particularly French thing? No, uh, this is an uh, American very big thing. Uh, mm -hmm. I saw it uh, a, a German thing. I saw, I saw it as a kind of um, yes, a, 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 a counter attack against something. Like yesterday with Sofia Oksanen, we were talking about the fact that at some point in France, uh, uh, literature was so political with Marguerite Duras or uh, uh, Jean Genet, and then people wanted to do the opposite and to do something apolitical. And as if with the, 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 the movement um, of gay people, uh, there was also a kind of counter-revolution now. Okay, they talked enough, uh, they have to shop it. And what, which doesn't mean, once again, that there are no, like, there are all those other issues. But when we started to talk about uh, feminism, we didn't say, okay, we have to stop talking about class. We said there is another issue. Mm -hmm. So, and today there are people uh, uh, writing, for example, if you take the, the, tr the, the trans experience, you have someone like uh, Camila Sosa Villada, who wrote uh, a very important book called 
bad girls uh, about uh, being trans. You have people who are really trying to break that wall, and we when and we walk together and we fight together. But that doesn't mean that as a gay person you have to dissolve what you are in others in order to prove you are a good person. I can be what I am and fight with other people without having to apologize for what I am. Mm -hmm. But the closest explanation you have to where this new polarization comes from is that it has something to do with class in terms of uh, social and cultural position. Do you have a, an idea, Alan? No, I don't. I'm, I'm <laughs> is this a relevant debate? Is this a relevant debate in Great Britain? Well, this too? is why I ask him if he thinks that it's oh. particularly oh. French thing, because I, I don't altogether recognise it in the oh. British context. But I may mm. just be shut away in my writing room and not. <laughs> <make mistakes. laughs> so uh, you, you told us, Edward, uh, yesterday in your lecture that you have been in harsh debates with uh, gay or queer communities. So uh, this has been uh, the issues then. Uh, the, this uh, new, these new divisions between gay and queer, and what it is uh, politically correct to, to no, be concerned about. I mean, about. I love division. The more mm -hmm. divisions we create, the happier I am. Uh, what I'm saying is that precisely, like uh, the more identities we will create that people can identify to, and the happier I am. The danger is to substitute one and to say this is the real one, this is the pure one, this is the true one that you should follow. And this is the danger, not the. I'm, I'm so happy. I have some friends who identify as queer, I identify as gay. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 some people who identify as different, many other things. So I just think that we should, uh, yes, uh, kind of um, open up this, 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 this conversation. And uh, yeah, one of the, one of the things that uh, um, made me sometimes uh, feel uncomfortable was the 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 the, 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 the certain, some class aspects uh, of the of the queer communities that were unconscious. I remember going to uh, queer parties where you had to dress politically, you had to listen to political uh, music. You know, no Rihanna or no Madonna because it's too mainstream. It's not political enough. They are not doing anything for uh, 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 working class people and everything. And so you had the impression that. Uh, there was a price of entry to those places that was an unconscious class price to pay. You know, you had to, uh, you had to know uh, Judith Butler, you had to know uh, Angela mm -hmm. Davis, you had to know uh, so many uh, uh, political aspects. Otherwise, you felt kind of, kind of, kind of dismissed. And so, this is something we should always uh, uh, care about: how much we, how can we take radicality, because at the same time the, the, the queer struggle and the queer community bought some radical stuff that the classical LGBT movement didn't bring. It's also very important. So how can we, can we take this radicality uh, without uh, having this radicality as a class thing to pay? You know? And it's very, it's, very, it's very complicated. I don't say I have the answer. Mm -hmm. I think it's, a, it's questions that we should uh, address um, to each other. Very interesting discussion. Um, a few years ago, you were, uh, Edward, in a public discussion, harsh discussion with uh, acclaimed Norwegian author, Sjartan Flögstad. I always have harsh discussions. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was about your descriptions of the working class, uh, and he disagreed. And, and yesterday evening, I think you used the expression, bad, bad books about his... Uh, 
his uh, his books. Uh, could, could you describe? I, I was. <laughs> wasn't, uh, did I hear wrongly? No, I was oh. saying that about the the, the, the Trumpist events. I never read the book of Lockett, so I, I cannot judge. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. No, because but I said the, I think I said the bad books of Did Events. And flock chats, but my pronouns say, but it means flock chats books, but not bad books. It would be really for my misunderstanding. No, no. But what are your disagreements with Flockstar, who is who is a very praised author of the working class in this country? But how? Well, what were the disagreements in 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 your discussion? I didn't have disagreements. He had. Uh, I yeah. published. I published a book, and he uh, no. started to attack me. I didn't know who he no. was. No. Uh, no, but, no, but, no, no, no. But I mean, just uh, no, but it's true. Uh, uh, and no, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different issue where he was uh, uh, precisely uh, blaming me for for picturing uh, homophobia. Uh, and racism uh, in the working class, and saying that in doing this, I was participating in a bourgeois ideology uh, that the working class are violent and everything, mm -hmm. as if it yes. was um, as if it was making working class disappear. Uh, when in fact the thing I was trying to do was uh, exactly the opposite. I had the impression that in 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 the literature about working class, when we were saying working class, we would only talk about men, about uh, straight guys going to the factory, uh, so, some, in all the times, uh, some different characters in Zola, you have everything, you have women, you have sex workers, you have everything. But that there was a mainstream focus on this, particularly uh, in the left, and the challenge for me was not to... Uh, say something wrong about the working class, but on the opposite, to expand the definition of the working class, mm -hmm. to say that there are also those gay boys, there are also those women who are suffering, there are also those people. Uh, and, and what it is to, 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 to open the, 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 the idea of, of working class. And this is sometime a, this is a sometime another, because it's the subject of today, a, 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 another tragedy of, of, of homosexuality, because um, uh, it's very difficult to talk about it when it happens in categories of people who are already oppressed by other things, like mm -hmm. class or racism and everything. And, and therefore, you have um, uh, to articulate another language to it and to try to say, and that's what I was doing, that, I don't know, my father or my brother were not homophobic because they chose it, but because of all those things we are... Uh, uh, discussing, and so the question was, yes, what do we call, it was a war of definition, mm. what do we call working class people? And I remember mm -hmm. Flogstad writing, because someone said it to me, uh, saying, uh, and anyway, one day I went to working class France, uh, and nobody talked about homosexuality, which is the evidence it's not a problem. Mm. And I was like, but this is <laughs> <No>. the problem. <laughs> Uh, this is what Alan <laughs> describes in his book. This is yeah, what I'm trying to describe. What it is to the, the more you. This is also an aspect of homosexuality. The more yeah. the more you go through it, and the more you want to put silence on it. You are the active yeah. builder of silence as a gay person yes. when you are confronted to homophobia. Uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. I come from a small industrial town in in Western Norway myself, and three, four, five of the most acclaimed Norwegian fiction authors are from places like this. Uh, 
in, in Western Norway. And, uh, and uh, it is my observation that uh, none of them take seriously these questions of uh, other sexual orientations. So I think Flökstar is representative of, of, of something. <laughs> but uh, how, how is this in a... <laughs> Yeah, together with um, together with Fodergutten and Lars Ove Selgesta also, they, they are idealizing uh, uh, the working class culture in these um, in these places uh, and making uh, making gayness or, or queerness something laughable or exotic at at the best. But uh, but uh, Great Britain is also and England is 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 a is a country with a traditionally strong working class. Uh, could you say anything about uh, how gay issues have been treated in in these communities or in the literature describing them? Um, there are marvellous... There's a, a wonderful playwright called Peter Gill, now, now in his 80s, um, who, who's treated with gay working class. Like, I, I went to a, see a wonderful new, new play by him the other day um, about two... Elderly gay men in a, in a care home who are sitting next to each other and they're holding hands and their their young selves materialise on either side of them, uh, recreating, recalling scenes in their earlier life. And they both have a, the, the old men move from states of, for, uh, to, peer, to to phases of extraordinary articulacy when when they're. Sort of, Enraptured by the recollection of what happened happened before, and you assume that the, these two gay men are, are a couple, but in fact they're, they're not. They've come from completely, they've never met before. They don't really know who the other is. Uh, but it, it's a brilliant theatrical device, um, and uh, I don't I don't have a, a sense of there being a, a but I, I, it's probably ignorance on my part. Um, they're a fascinating sort of, I mean, a, a very important uh, film, I think, of the, the, the mid-80s was My Beautiful Laundrette, Hanif mm. Qureshi's film directed by Stephen Frears, which brought together the sort of questions of racism, homophobia, re relationship between a young Pakistani man uh, and uh, a young white English racist and the love affair they have, which is an extraordinary sort of boundary breaking film and I remember the intense excitement I felt when I saw I said, well, that, that, that wonderful experience of something do, doing something you've never seen seen done before um, I don't think I can give a terribly authoritative answer to your question <laughs> we'll soon be closing this session now uh, just my last question to you uh, it's a bit inspired by the deeply moving and beautiful and therefore possibly revolutionary epilogue of, of change method, where, Edward, you reconsider your life compared to earlier, discussing what you also might uh, feel about regret. Um, uh, so to both of you, after these two days of very intelligent and sophisticated discussions, but about a literature that has as a target to, to make an impact and change something. Um, here comes the simplest, most banal, but perhaps also most profoundly important question uh, to both of you. Are you happy? <laughs> Alan? Uh, I'm, I'm temperamentally happy, <laughs> yes. Uh, has literature made you happy? Writing books or reading books? Um, 
there are moments of elation uh, to do with writing books, particularly finishing them. Uh, but um, no, I don't in general enjoy writing or look forward to it. <laughs> and I, and I, I, find, I find each book that I write is harder to write than the one before, which is very annoying. I assumed at the start you would learn how to write a book and it would just get easier and easier. Uh, and I think it's because of, you know, you don't want to repeat yourself and you've set mm -hmm. yourself new challenges. And as you get older, your powers of invention are, are perhaps dwindling. Um, and your, but also your, your apprehension of, of life is sort of enlarging. So it's, it's a rather complicated mm -hmm. sort of um, situation of one, one thing getting bigger and the other smaller. Um, so I, I do find it more and more of a, a struggle. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very glad that I can still do it, <laughs> do it at all. Yeah. Um, so are we, your readers, and, uh, and I think you might, during 30, 40 years, have been able to uh, make some of us a bit not happy, but uh, happier. Uh, not, not because you have changed our world, but because you have uh, uh, influenced the way we see the world. Um, Edward, are you happy? <laughs> I mean, it would make me feel very uncomfortable to talk about myself, and so, um, <laughs> so, so for me, the question is never okay. I'm I'm doing my activist thing again, but uh, the, the question is not is someone happy or not. Is um, do someone have the conditions to be happy or not? And mm -hmm. there, whether this person is happy or not is very complex. Of course, sometimes I wake up, I'm happy. Of course, sometimes I wake up, I want to die. Of course, sometimes I wake up, I hate myself, uh, uh, like everyone else. So the question is, like, what kind of context, situation and life do you provide to people to make them, for them, the possibility to be happy sometimes, some days? Mm -hmm. And if there are days that I am uh, happy now, uh, it's because of people like, Marcel Proust or Violette Le Duc or Jean Genet or James Baldwin or Alan Hollinghurst who made my body possible, who made my desire possible, who made me walking down the street with another man possible. And uh, whether or not I'm happy every day, I can be happy from time to time and it's because of those people. So thank you very much, Alan. Yeah. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.